How do I know what I think until I see what I say? The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of best-selling author Ryan Holiday. In this episode, we're talking with Ryan about his newest book, Discipline is Destiny, The Power of Self-Control. This is his second book in the Stoic Virtue series and one of my favorite books that he's written. He makes a case that in a world where most things are literally at our fingertips, discipline becomes even more important because it's what helps us remain in check and avoid ruin, imbalance, dysfunction, or dependency. I had a blast talking to Ryan and learned a lot in the process. So grab your green notebooks and get ready to take some notes. And please welcome to the show, Ryan Holiday. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, Ryan, this is, uh, I guess this is the second uh, in a four-part interview series. <laughs> over, the, <laughs> over the next four years, we, we spoke last year about your, your book, Courage is Calling. And this time we're going to talk about Discipline is Destiny and, uh, you know, just I've read all of your books, and I would say besides Ego is the Enemy, I think this one, man, was, uh, in my opinion, was uh, was probably one of your best. Oh, thank you. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. So let's uh, let's talk about discipline a little bit. Do you feel like people kind of get uh, get confused when they talk about discipline or, or, you know, think discipline is one thing when it's actually something completely different? Yeah, well, of, of course, discipline is itself many things. There's physical discipline, there's sort of emotional discipline, there's spiritual discipline, there's discipline that you follow, and then there's like a discipline that you study in. So so this is a, a multifaceted thing in and of itself. I would say that the biggest place that people get screwed up with discipline is that they think the discipline that you enforce on others is the primary thing. when what I think the virtue of discipline is, is about self-discipline, right? So I think we can we can sometimes get very caught up in, you know, wanting things to be a certain way, wanting people to speak to us a certain way. Like 
sort of parental discipline, if you will, or or authoritarian discipline. And really, the Stoics would say the discipline that matters is the is the discipline you enforce on yourself. Seneca says, no one is fit to rule who is not first master of themselves. That's at least the kind of discipline I'm writing the book about. I've been in the military now for 18 years, and uh, I feel like that is one word that we throw around way too easily. And I'm probably going to get in trouble for this one, but uh, but we you know we attribute discipline to haircuts, uh, uniform, you know, spit polish, stuff like that. And it was one of the reasons why I think the book resonated with me so much is it's a it's that deeper discipline that you're talking about, that self discipline, that that discipline to you know cut out all the noise that's around us and focus on one thing, or or you know like to understand yourself in such a way that you move down a path and don't let anything else affect that. The other discipline matters too, maybe less so in your world than in my world, or or maybe in a way that people would think in my world. Like as a writer, you you work for yourself, you have no boss, there's no dress code, you can sort of do whatever you want. And so I actually find that because of that, some of those more superficial elements of discipline really matter. Like I wake up every morning and I shower and I shave and I you know, I stick to a routine, I get to my office by a certain time, right? I try to keep my space generally clean. All of that I focus a lot on because from that sort of outer order, I think can come a kind of an inner order and an inner focus that if your life or your routine or your decisions are a mess, that's going to present itself in the work. So I I think there's a Flaubert quote that I actually have it in the book. He says, like, you want to be really ordered in the physical world so you can be free and experimental and, and you know, um, uninhibited in the, in the spiritual sort of creative world, which I like a great deal. It's not that these things don't matter. Um, and and I sort of talk about that in in the there's a tension of, of this in in the pursuit of discipline. I use the example I talk a lot about Angela Merkel, who's this sort of unusual political figure in that she's not sort of strikingly attractive. She doesn't wear sort of glamorous designer clothes. You know, she doesn't have you know a trendy haircut. She's sort of anti those things, and yet you know she does actually wear nice clothes. Uh, they're just not flashy, nice clothes. Basically, like she's a chemist, I believe, or a quantum physicist. She's obviously very smart and doesn't care a lot about superficial things. But as she has advanced in her political career, she's also had to come to terms with the fact that this is a public profession in which image is very important. And that tension is, you know, a, a big deal. And uh, navigating it is is difficult, but I guess I would agree with your general conceit, which is that people can sometimes focus on style over substance. Like if you have a spit polished uniform and you're whatever, but you fly off the handle anytime someone says something you don't like, I would not categorize you as a disciplined person just because you're you've got you know ninety degree creases. I'm laughing, man, because I was thinking through this interview on the way to work this morning, and that was the exact example that I came up with because uh, it's such a, a deeper level. And, you know, one of the things that on this platform that I really, I really push leaders to do is to know thyself. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to do the reflection, to understand who they are. What role does that play in discipline? 
Yeah, I mean, even to go to what we're talking about is like, what role are you in? What is required of that role? There's a story I tell in the book about Zachary Taylor, where he was sort of notorious. He didn't he didn't care about the uniform. He was always in the field. He would wear like a private's jacket. And he's supposed to meet with this Commodore, uh, this Navy Commodore. And he, he sort of hears that the Navy takes uniforms much more seriously. And he knows this particular person, you know, really likes presentation and is always wearing his dress uniform. So Zachary Taylor goes and he gets all the way dolled up and puts on all his stuff. Meanwhile, the Commodore, hearing that he's to meet with Zachary Taylor, who doesn't care about the uniform, goes in casual dress. And the two of them sort of attempt to meet each other halfway and are actually further apart or have switched roles. To me, the the moral of that story is like, you got to know what the role or the moment requires for you. Sometimes you dress up, sometimes you don't. There is a wonderful Thoreau quote, though, that I like. He says, beware of any enterprise which requires new clothes. And, um, you know, as someone who enjoys the fact that I can wear whatever I want, and I sometimes joke like my whole life is about succeeding to a degree that I don't have to wear a suit. And then sometimes I'll get invited to something and I'll have to wear a suit. Like, I don't feel like, oh, I'm so, this is such an honor. I, I tend to see it as, a, as an inconvenience. It's like a punishment. Like, uh, I don't have to put on the Mick uniform every day. And, uh, you know, here I am. Like, whenever I go to Washington, I always think it's funny that I have to, I have to dress up. I've been called to meet with someone and I, like, I'm doing them a favor and I have to dress up. So, you know, you have to know you have to know the rules for sure. And you have to know the moment you're in and you have to know what you're trying to do. If you're in a, you know, more directly with discipline, if you're in a, a one year tour of duty, you know, that might require working certain hours. But if you're if you've settled into a role that you're going to be in for the next 20 years, you have to pace yourself differently. Right. And so I think knowing who you are, what you're trying to do, what the desirable outcome is you know, in a lot of ways shapes the decisions that you need to make. I was about to make a comment early on when you were talking about dress about, I didn't know that you had clothes outside of Iron Maiden t-shirts. And then you, <laughs> I'm wearing one right now. And then you lean back. Yeah, you're, you're aware of one. No, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think that that's a, that's a big thing is like understanding your role and then understanding like who you are as an individual and kind of, you know, that my big thing is like, what's your calling? Like what's, What's the hero's journey that, that you're on and, and kind of trying to stay on that path when there's all these other siren songs to the left and right of you that could call you one direction or the other. Yeah. And just, just staying true to that. In one of his essays, Seneca talks about, you know, this sense of the path that you're on. And he says not to be distracted by the paths that crisscross yours, especially from those, he says, who are hopelessly lost. And so, you know, th that's the problem with comparing yourself against others, measuring yourself against others, is you really don't know when they began. You don't know where they're ending up. You don't know what they value. You don't know what's important to them. So, yeah, maybe someone is, um, you know, rocketing ahead of you at work, but the effect that that's taking on their marriage, which perhaps is quite important to you, isn't measurable in the same way. And the costs of the trajectory they're on only become clear later, right? Or if one person, like I think about this with authors, like, am I an author who has one book in me in which I should really be measuring one book against one other person's book or someone who's only written one book? But if my goal is to have more of a sustainable, enduring career, well, then there's less company there. And I'm sort of, you know, in virgin territory. And I have to, I have to sort of 
come up with my own metrics of success. I love that. And, you know, like that's one of the things that, you know, with, with the leaders I work with, I, I try to, you know, when, when I was coming up in the military, the people that I worked for would ask me to write down where I saw my career going in like the next 20 years without regardless of like, you know, it, it was irrespective of, you know, was I going to get married? Was I going to have kids? You know, all these things. And what I tell the people who work for me now is we do an exercise where we come up with your values and then kind of like let that be the guidepost to, you know, where you're going. And then to the point of looking at other people's lives, I know that you read a lot of biographies and, and so do I. And, and that's one of the things I think a lot of times people cherry pick aspects of people's lives to emulate, but you don't have the whole, like, you know, Frederick mm -hmm. Douglass was a famous orator, did so much, but his personal life, you know, he spent his entire adult life picking up the pieces of his, his son's lives um, mm -hmm. that he was never around for. I was just reading Robert Quorum's biography of uh, Victor Krulak, um, Brute. Uh, and then I, I interviewed him recently for my podcast, Robert Quorum, and he wrote this fantastic book about John Boyd. And I was talking to him about both these characters are like as revered a figure as they could be, you know, to their co-workers, but their children have very sort of torn feelings about their parents. They sort of also revered their father, but also feared their father and resented their father and bear certain all sorts of generational trauma as a result of how their father lived and acted and, and uh, the sort of lack of balance in their lives. And um, you got to decide sort of what's important to you. And I think being great at your job, as important as both of those men's jobs were, right? Especially uh, Victor, who's sort of in the shit in the Pacific theater of of the war. I mean, obviously lots of, people benefit from those sacrifices but you know to be really disciplined at work at the expense of your personal relationships or the people that you have brought into this world that doesn't strike me as success i mean i think you're watching this play out i don't know him so i feel always weird speculating about people's personal lives but you know tom brady has talked about this and you're sort of watching it play out right now he's like wants this extra season and his wife's like that's not the bargain that we made you know and when someone has a gift as tom brady does you know it feels bad and hard to shortchange that gift but your children are also a gift and you know and at the end of the day is the nfl that important you know we all like to think that we're absolutely essential and irreplaceable and no one could possibly do what we do better than we we are. I'm not sure that's, you know, actually the case. No, and and you know, one of the things that you do in, in your writing is you take the long view of history. I mean, and I think even Marcus Aurelius wrote about it. Like how many people who thought they were the greatest person in the world ended up, it turned into a statue that eventually turned into dust itself, you know? Yeah. Yeah, he says, look, you're not going to be a, around to enjoy your posthumous fame, so you got to start there. And then, he, you know, he would say, he's like, how unfamiliar now the names, and he lists all these emperors, you know, before him. He goes, Who's, who remembers the name of Vespasian? Nobody, right? Uh, he's not even, like, there's only, like, 40 or 50 emperors in all of Rome, and 
So this is one of the 50 most important people of all time. And, you know, the name sounds like uh, made up. And, you know, he says, think of all the people in those courts. Think about the wealthiest person. Think about the most beautiful person. They're all gone, you know, and uh, you can see a, a version of this, too. Like, look, if you listen to the most popular songs of the 90s, maybe you recognize a lot of them. But then you, you pull out the most popular songs of the 80s. It starts to get less familiar, 70s, 60s. And it doesn't take long, depending on when you were born, to be like the biggest songs of a generation are totally unfamiliar to me. And that that is true for whoever you are, whatever you do. Like to be a general right now means you're in a very elite class, but you're also joining a class that's tens of thousands of people throughout US history, you know, the vast majority of which have been utterly and completely forgotten. You know, there's somebody that comes to mind now, you know, it's an iconic general in our army, you know, several years ago. Um, you know, he's super famous. People tell stories about him. And I was walking with a young, like 20 something year old officer one day. And I was, you know, telling this person how much this person influenced my, my career. Yeah. No idea what I was talking about. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and so it's, it's just a great reminder that, um, that eventually we'll, uh, we'll move on. So like, as I think about your book too, you know, one of the people that you highlight in there was, was Edison, you know, as we're talking mm -hmm. about looking at people's lives and everybody was like, uh, you know, this guy's a genius and, and, and all this stuff. And he used to hate that. And I'm looking at, uh, Edmund Morris's book behind you right now. Um, Where is it? other shoulder, other shoulder. I love in the intro of the book, he highlights, uh, something that his daughter wrote about him. And he was like, everything on earth depends on will. Um, there is no such thing as an idea being brain born. Everything comes from the outside. Yeah. Oh no, this wasn't his daughter. This was him. He said the genius hangs around his laboratory. Yes. Day and night. If anything happens and he's and he's there to catch it. If he hasn't, it might just uh, happen the same. Only it would never be his. And it was just this fact that like Edison worked like twenty two hours a day. Not yes. a crazy work ethic. Yeah. So first we should stipulate probably a violation of what we were just talking about <laughs> as far as, you know, family and balance. And and I think most of his kids were were sort of duds. He had complicated relationships with them. But yes, yeah. he, you know, he there's the the famous Edison quote that, you know, gets attributed to him. Maybe he said it, maybe he didn't, but you know, an idea is one percent inspiration, ninety-nine percent perspiration. The invention of the light bulb, Edison isn't the innovator of how a light bulb would work or what it would be. His discovery is the filament which goes inside the light bulb that makes it a commercially viable technology. And he tests like 6,000 different filaments in, in the process of discovering that. So he really was a workhorse. He wasn't a genius. He didn't invent these magical things from nothing, but he really was a tinkerer who would you know chip away at something until he made progress. And I certainly identify with that as a writer. I, I will say that Edmund Morris biography, all three of Edmund's books about Theodore Roosevelt are incredible. But I think the opening line of, of the Edison book, he says like, at the end, as it was in the beginning, he subsisted only on milk, which I think is maybe one of the greatest <laughs> opening lines that I've ever read in a book. Yes. And it's a very strange book. It's written in reverse chronological order. It starts with the death and it goes backwards. But yeah, it was definitely uh, not the, let's say Tesla was a much better thinker and inventor and all things than Edison, but Edison was a better craftsman and a better worker. 
Yeah. And so again, it gets this idea of, I think sometimes we just look at people's accomplishments on the outside and discount the discipline that, that goes into it and the sacrifice as well. Like you said, the amount of hours he spent in the lab, but on the other hand, what did he sacrifice? And it was, he had the, this weird relationship with all of his kids. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, sometimes people, I get it a lot. I don't feel like it's egotistical. Like, How do you write so many books? And the answer is I just show up and I work every day. Like I treat it like a job and I, I write every day and published finished works come out of the other side. There's a number of other reasons, you know, my books are short, blah, blah, blah. I, I write in a very specific genre that, you know, doesn't require me to, to study Edison's life for 20 years, the way someone like Edmund Morris might or whatever. But the real reason I'm prolific is that I work every day and it's not really that much more complicated than that. Even me, Ryan, like I, I work a 70 hour plus work week. I go on training exercises. I go on deployments and I've been doing this now for a decade, yeah. you know, like, and, and it's getting up even earlier than I'm supposed to getting that 10 to 20 minutes of writing in yeah. every morning, getting that 10, 20 minutes of reading you know, finding what, uh, you know, I've talked about on this podcast before, time confetti. There's little slivers of time throughout the day. Oh, interesting. Add, add up. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm able to read, you know, several books. Yeah, you, you make time. Yeah, instead of watching, you know, random videos on Twitter, TikTok, or, whatever, or Instagram or TikTok, it's uh, I'll just read a couple pages of a book and then, uh, and then move on. Yeah. And look, when I, when I hear people go, oh, it takes longer. I don't see that in the work, you know, like when I look at, when I look at someone who does, you know, a book every five years, the vast majority of the time, I don't see five years of work there to be perfectly honest. Right. Like I just don't, I just don't see it. I see it in some works, right. I see it in Robert Greene or I see it in Robert Caro, you know, I see it in the greats, but I think the vast majority of people are just wasting a lot of time and not working very hard. And again, I think it goes back to knowing yourself. Like I, I've heard you talk before about like, I am a writer and yeah. uh, I'm a writer, I'm a husband, I'm a dad. And then those are kind of like your big rocks. And then everything else in your life just kind of is like sand in the jar or whatever around those rocks that, you know, you fit it in where you- Yeah, what's what's the main thing? Actually talk about that a little bit because you you talk about that in the book and I've heard you talk about it in podcasts as well. And I, I love that idea. When I went and I talked to the the Rams a couple of years ago, I, I got it from them, but their, their motto is the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing, right? So like, what is the thing that only you can do? What is the main thing you're supposed to be doing? And is your life more or less built around that thing? Right. You know, people say something's important and they go, I've always wanted to do that or my goal is X. But again, I just don't see if I looked at the calendar, I'm not sure that would be borne out. You know, this also cuts back to family. You go, family's the most important thing. Okay. Show me how you spent your week, you know, because it seems like you missed a T ball practice and then you were gone for three days. And then, you know, you got home and you're on your phone, you know, you say it's the important thing, but you know, where's the evidence, right? And like, you can say you're a writer, but what is the activity log testified to, right? You can say, you know, I'm a hands-on leader, but you know, how much of your work week was spent behind your desk, keeping to yourself, right? Like what would come out in court, right? What would an audit show? To me, that's the question. 
I love that. And like, it was, you know, even I was preparing for this interview a little while ago. My son came downstairs and he's like, Hey dad, will you go play basketball with me? Yeah. And I was like, sure. Like, yeah, Ryan's a pro. We'll figure this out as we, yeah. as, as we go. But yeah, then we went and played, we played basketball for like, you know, 45 minutes and it was, it was absolutely amazing. Yeah. But it was because of the, you know, I know who I am yes. and uh, I know, know what I value and then aligning my, my actions to that. And the other, the other thing I've kind of learned too, is people are a lot more in love with the noun than they are the verb. They like this of idea of being something, but then when it comes down to actually doing the work, it gets yes. way too hard, and then they, they take an off-ramp very early. Yeah, and look, it's very hard. Those people are then often hardest on other people underneath them as if they haven't modeled that exact behavior that they're getting upset by, right? Like, you've got to, the Stoics say, don't talk about your philosophy, embody it. And that, that is something I think about. I don't think I'm perfect at it. I wouldn't try to present, you know, in, anything remotely like that. But I do, I do think, like, for instance, I'll give you an example. There's nowhere in Marcus Aurelius's writings does he explicitly identify as a Stoic. Does he say, "I am a Stoic philosopher"? Does he, you know, commit himself to the the Stoic school in any way? He's considered a Stoic philosopher and a philosopher king, not because of what he wrote, but because of who he was as a person. And so, as I have thought about that. And, and definitely there are moments in my life and large chunks of my life where I wouldn't pass this test. But my, I, I, I come to think about it like, if nobody knew what I did for a living, would they identify or notice the principles that I write about in my actual life and behavior, right? So, you know, what would come out, again, in an audit or an expose, that, that's sort of thinking about it that way and then having to, to walk the talk and that uh, I think there's a, one of the popes said something like, um, preach at all times, use words when necessary, oh, right? That, and yeah. now, obviously, as a writer, my job is to use words. So there's a tension here. Like, I talk about it more than I am about it because that's also what I do. But I try as best as I can to, to actively and regularly go, yeah, but where is the evidence of this in my life? Yeah, and that's, you know, for me, that's really hard because... I can write all day. I can do this podcast all day. But then when I get to work, I have to look 600 other people in the face. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and those like, people are frustrating and annoying and they don't do what they say. And, you know, you're busy. And like, there's all these reasons to not be those things. Not my people, Ryan. They're the best <laughs> people in the world. <laughs> but no, I, I, you're right. There's all these things that hit you. And that's why, you know, before I, I took command, I had read, um, meditations of Marcus Aurelius. And, you know, they were like, oh, this is really good. This is really insightful. But once I took command, for those who have never read it before, I have to recommend the Robin Waterfield edition because uh, I think it's great because it gives you the context in the notes to kind of explain yes. what he's talking about. But when you're in charge and he says things of like being aware of becoming Caesarified, died in purple, like you start understanding what exactly he meant. You're like, yeah, man, I, I feel yes. you. Because this guy, this was his private journals while he was in charge of a lot of people fighting a war on the front during the Marcomannic Wars. And so it is a, uh, it, it's a book where you can relate to somebody who was in charge of people, you know, thousands of years before you, you took charge of somebody. I'm, I'm writing a lot about Harry Truman right now. And he's the main, he's the main character in the book that I'm writing now. And, um, 
there's this fascinating book. Uh, I have it over here. It's called Plain Speaking. It's this uh, sort of oral autobiography conducted by Merle Miller, who was uh, like sort of a friend of Truman's. And it's this, you know, set of interviews that they did over a long period of time after Truman leaves the White House. And uh, he's asking him about, you know, reading and how he read. And there's this great line from Truman. He says, the only new thing in the world is the history you haven't read, uh, which I love. And so they're anyway, they're nerding out about books. And and one of the things that Truman does is Truman gives uh, Merle Miller to borrow for the evening his copy of Meditations. And Merle Miller talks about just the underlining that Truman had clearly done on this edition over a very long period of time. Like we don't know when he first read it, but you know, the exact sort of epiphany that you're having where suddenly, you know, you're in a position of power, influence, people want things from you. You can do things that you couldn't do before. You're under stresses that you could never imagine. And you go, shit, this guy really knew what he was talking about. Like this is one of the translations of meditations. I forget who translated, but a, a funny sort of story when when um, uh, General Mattis was Secretary of Defense and he went on some diplomatic mission or whatever to to China, they gave him a copy of this translation, even though there's a photo of him getting it from his Chinese counterpart. But this particular translation is titled The Emperor's Handbook. And if you understand that meditations isn't just a person talking to themselves, it is the most powerful leader in the world talking to themselves about how to not be ruined or broken by this immense responsibility, the use case for the book becomes a lot clearer. Yeah, like I said, it's a, it, it's a phenomenal book. And, you know, you talk about discipline of the body, emotions, you, you talk about all those things in uh, Discipline is Destiny. And uh, what, one of the, I don't know, have you ever read Flow by uh, Mihai Chuklis Mihai? Yes, I uh, have never attempted to pronounce his name, but I just <laughs> I, I I know the sight of it, and yes, I have read the book. So the only reason I'm saying it like that is because I've never I've always been scared to say his name until Susan Cain said it on the podcast one time. There you and go. Then, and I played it before I talked to you just to make sure I had it right. But one of the things that, that he talks about is you have like this biological pressure inside of you just to act and react to the environment. And then on the other side, you have social pressures trying to get you to do things. And he's like, basically, if you don't have discipline, and he doesn't say discipline, but it's basically if you don't have discipline, you are at the nature of two completely impersonal forces that don't care anything about your well-being. And that's essentially like, you know, a huge chunk of your book. Yeah, I mean, it's like if you're not in charge, then something else or someone else is in charge, right? If you're not setting the standards, then somebody else is. Yeah, and that plays out in the book when you contrast Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. Yeah, I, I was fascinated with these two characters. I mean, I think it's important to say, uh, I, I make this point in my ego book, it's not that there are no successful people with big egos or that undisciplined people never succeed. They succeed all the time, often because they're very lucky, often because they are extremely, extremely talented, right? Uh, and they can get away with it. But the vast majority of people are not going to succeed without discipline, without keeping their ego in check. And, you know, when you look at someone like Babe Ruth, I mean, you just look at his, you know, his waistline, 
you realize he could have been even greater than he was right now. Obviously this is a different era of sports and different era of nutrition and all these things, but like, that's not the physique of an ideal athlete that he was able to accomplish all that he did, basically treating his body like a garbage can almost makes the accomplishment more impressive in some ways. But, you know, both Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig's careers are not fully what they could have been. Lou Gehrig is not to blame. He is the victim of terrible luck and a tragedy. Babe Ruth, that's a self-inflicted wound, and that's much less harder to justify. I never had, you know, I never thought about the, again, comparing this to until I read the book. And it was, yeah, it was, it was very plain. Like, Babe would chase everything. I think you talked about, like, the amount of beer and steaks he would eat in one city. It was obscene. Where- <laughs> I mean, you're like, how did you... I, all you need to know about Babe Ruth is he once ate so many hot dogs and drank so much soda in one sitting that he had to go to the hospital. Any other thing but food, and you'd be like, oh, this person is a drug addict, right? Like, he was an addict and not in control of himself and had such an insatiable... Uh, you know, thirst for every kind of pleasure and satisfaction that, you know, I mean, it ruined marriages, it ruined careers, it it took years off of his life, it blew through what would today be millions and millions of dollars, you know, to what end? Yeah, and somebody even a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more current, um, and he's got an autobiography coming out next month, but it's, it's our personal friend, Stephen Pressfield, you know, like, yes. he's, that guy, like decades, just toiling away, you know, just continuing to write, continuing to get better. And it took a long time. Yes. Um, but like, if he would have given up, we would have never had the Legend of Agra Vance, the Gates of Fire, the War of... I mean, he's inspired so many people through his writing that he would have, you know, like a lesser person would have just been like, I don't have this. And and he definitely didn't start out as a as you know, a writer, I don't think he got his first success until he was, you know, 49, 51, something like that. Well, it's funny. I'm, I have it here just the way it, he emailed me, uh, 17 minutes ago while we were talking, uh, he's the best. Um, I, when I hear stories like that, or I hear about like an NFL coach who gets their first coaching job at 65 or whatever, you know, and you're just, and, and I mean, even with the military, like I have a lot of respect slash bafflement at the way certain people can sort of toil away for as long as they toil away before they get, you know, that what is nice about writing or what's nice about some, you know, sort of avenues the internet has opened up is it 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 allows you to fast forward on certain things. I mean, you still have to be really good. You still have to be disciplined, all that. I'm just saying like, I don't know if I'd be sitting here if, you know, my first break had taken another 15 years. Like I, I, I try to be humble about like acknowledging just how, what amount of dedication and discipline and sacrifice it takes to be a late bloomer in that sense. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, you know, getting a little vulnerable with you. I'll be like, oh, look, babe, Ryan's coming out with another book. <laughs> I've been doing this for 10 years. And she's like, Babe, you write for like five, 10 minutes a day. Yeah, you have a, you have a day, you have, you've had yeah. another 20 year career while I've been doing this. So I, 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 but this goes to the point about comparing yourself, right? Is that, you know, different people start at different times, different people end up at different places. And also different people have different paces or speeds at which they're able to operate by. What really ultimately matters is what is the impact of the output. So, you know, 
Harper Lee writes one book and it changes, you know, generation of people, you know, somebody else writes 20 books and, you know, five of them are good. And those influence, it, it's different, right? It's, it's just all different. And I think what really matters, I tell this story in the book is like, did a person one, like we we're saying, you know, what was the main thing for them? Um, but two, like, did they do the best that they were capable of doing, right? When they look back, do they go, I could have done more if I was less afraid, if I'd worked harder, if I'd been more focused, if I'd said no to more things? You know, I think what it really comes down to is like, what did you do with the hand you were dealt and the moment that you were dealt that hand? I appreciate that you highlight because you actually listed those questions out in the book. And I love that because I actually wrote like, bring that up in the podcast. So I'm gonna go ahead and check that off <laughs> of the list, list of things to talk about. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Ryan. I mean, um, you know, and, it, and again, going back to Steve, he's talking about when you look around you and start comparing, you're basically foregoing looking in the one place that matters most. And that's, you know, that's inside of you. Yeah. So as we, as, as we kind of wind down this interview, what are you hoping to gain as people continue to, because I feel like what you're doing is we had these four cardinal virtues a long, long time ago, and then we built buildings over it and put technology on top of it. Yeah. We've done all these things. And you're kind of like an excavator right now, like bringing this stuff back up to the surface. So what, like, what's your kind of goal with all this? No, that's a great metaphor. Uh, I do feel like that. And that is what gets me excited. You know, I don't want to sort of alienate anyone who's uh, religious, but there was this moment right around the time of Marx's Realist where there's sort of philosophy is sort of the predominant civic religion. It's what explains to people how to live, what to do, you know, how to act. And then uh, Christianity comes in, sort of supplants that. It's the source of meaning in lots of people's lives. It's the explanation to them of what's right and wrong, what to do and what not to do. And it works for the most part, I mean, it's responsible for a lot of bad things also. But the point is, as these old institutions fall away and people are increasingly not religious, I still think people wake up and they go, well, uh, what kind of person should I be? I, what what should I, what sort of, you know, not everyone gets the privilege of what you and a lot of your peers have, which is you sort of inherit and are incubated in a code of living, a code of conduct, a culture that expects and demands and brings out of a person, ideally like their best self, right? Who they're meant to be, what they're capable of being. Well, you know, in the civilian world, that doesn't really exist. And, and it certainly does, it, it exists even less so in the secular world, right? And so I feel like what so inspires me about these cardinal virtues and what I'm trying to accomplish with this series is to sort of lay down a very tried and true and timeless formula for living, a set of standards to adhere to, to, to sort of use as one's North Star. I mean, I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence that the four directions on the compass are also referred to as the cardinal points, right? That's what these virtues are supposed to be. They're supposed to point you in the right direction. And so I, I feel like what I'm doing with this series is laying out what those virtues are not belaboring them, but instead illustrating them with the stories and examples and lessons from people who have embodied them in one way or another. Yeah. And I, I think, Ryan, your second book, Courage is Calling, Discipline is Destiny. I think you've, you've knocked it out of the park. 
Now oh, you, just do, you just got to do it two more times, man. <laughs> I'm about I'm about somewhere between halfway and two thirds done with the the draft of what will be the third book, the first draft. So as excited as I am about talking about the new one, like where I'm living creatively, like before you and I talked, is like is I'm I'm in that one, and so it's kind of been this weird cycle on the series where like. That's what I just spent the last two years thinking about. And now I've spent the last six months thinking about this other thing. And But it's been wonderful to be immersed in these ideas and and these sort of heroes that I've, you know, collected that represent the ideas. And last question before we uh, wrap this up is, do you ever feel, and this is, you know, I kind of alluded to it earlier with me, is uh, every time I write, I'm writing a social contract with me and everybody else who who reads what I'm writing, or even now that we're talking, like, I'm just trying to focus. It's just you and I, but I also recognize that a lot of people uh, listen to this podcast. So how do you, do you feel like an extra level of stress at all, you know, as you, as you go through life or, or not really? I mean, a stress in what way? There's been a couple of times, because I, you know, before I got into command, I'd been writing like 10 years before this. So I was like a younger officer, writing things I was way cockier than I am right now. Like I'll say something in a meeting or something will be presented to me that I think about like something that my 30-year-old self wrote in defense of it or, or speaking out against. Sure. And I'm like, man, what am I going to do right? Like what, what would the writer who's like calm, sure. cool, and collected do right now? And then I, you know, I find myself kind of going down that path sometimes. I see what you're saying. You're certainly drawing a line in the stand and then you have to think about that when it comes time to make decisions. You know, if you write a book about ego, you got to go, hey, am I being an egotistical ass right now? Uh, you know, if if you write a book about stillness, well, then I got to go, hey, what does my life look like right now? Yeah. You know, I, I, I tend to get very interested in a certain topic. I'm doing a lot of work on myself around that topic as I'm writing. And then, yeah, there's sort of both the residue that sticks and then also the propensity to sort of drift away from it. And you have to come back to it for sure. I think with these books, you know, Encourage and then in, Dis in Discipline, I have sort of an afterward where I talk about my relationship to that thing. And so that's also there, right? Like I have to go, okay, you know, am I preaching here, uh, you know, talking about some hypothetical or ideal that I'm, you know, not even remotely close to fulfilling? How am I going to address that when it comes time to sort of, you know, talking about it at the end? So, um yeah, there, I think one of the blessings and the curses of writing is that you are going out on a limb with the ideas and then, you know, you got to put up or shut up. Yeah, it, it, going back to kind of wrapping this up with Edison, you know, I he used to make announcements. I think Robert Greene actually wrote about it. He would announce his inventions to the media before he'd even invented it yet. And that was kind of like the thing that held him to like, I've got to finish this. Yeah, you write the check. You write the check, and then you got to make sure there's sufficient funds. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that's yeah. So we'll just uh, we'll just keep making sure we have money in the bank. Yes. If a listener, if one of the listeners is, you know, this is their first time hearing about hearing about you, where can they find you? Where's like where are you at? Yeah, I I, I would go. Um, I'd go to uh, the dailystoic.com/email, and I do one free email about stoic philosophy every single day. Uh, and I think that's probably the best place to start. I'll plug your reading list too, because it's what got me started writing my own. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And so you will recommend like three to four books a month. 
and uh, it's it's a really great place to find to find books. And uh, you know, I've I've done done something similar with trying to keep my. I get my, it. I get it myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. So so I, I highly recommend if if you aren't subscribed to Ryan's reading list, check it out. Check out the Daily Stoic podcast. Ryan didn't mention it, but also check out Daily Dad too, um, oh, which is you. one of Ryan's other other projects. <laughs> Um, to just help people be uh, to be better fathers, better parents. So, uh, Ryan, man, this is awesome. I'll see you Thanks again for next me, year. As always, <laughs> hopefully, 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 I gotta, I gotta write the book first. Yeah, you, you've got this. All right, Ryan, have a great day, man. Thanks, man. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud. There's a-